Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. On this episode, we're going to be talking about addiction, uh, chemical dependence, what that does to an individual, but not just that. We also want to concentrate on, as always, the journey of restoration for an individual with addiction uh, and what that process looks like. To help walk us through that, I did uh, go out and get an expert. Uh, Greg George is on the show today. Before I tell you a little bit about him and invite him into the program, I do want to mention this is, uh, we're heading into the last week as of the release of this episode where you can use the promo code COURAGE20, COURAGE20, all one, uh, no spaces, over at GraceStoryMinistries.com to save 20% off the admission to the very first Grace Story Men's Conference coming up in May. If you want to know more about that or you know somebody that should be going to that, uh, head on over to GraceStoryMinistries.com. Just click on conference. You'll be able to see all the speakers, all the information, and uh, go ahead and use the the code COURAGE20 to save 20% off the admission. Now, that is only going on until the end of February. After that, that code goes away, and uh, we're coming up quick on that. That's only a a couple months, a few months away from men's conference. Uh, It's one you're not going to want to miss. And uh, I hope that there I meet many of you that have been listening to the podcast and I get to shake your hand. I'd love to do that. Now, our guest today is Greg George. He is 34 years old, married to Debbie, and they have three children. He currently serves as the director of operations at 180 Recovery, a faith-based organization headquartered in Frankfort, Indiana, that's dedicated to serving the immediate and surrounding communities with services and resources for recovery from addiction. Most notably, Greg served in the U.S. Army, deploying to Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom. He holds an Associates in Intercultural Studies from God's Bible School and College, a Bachelor's in Social Work from Liberty University, and a Master's of Social Work from Indiana Wesleyan University. Uh, And we have him on the show today. Uh, Welcome to the show, Greg George. Thanks, Nate. It's good to be here. So I see you got your swag on today representing 180 Recoveries uh, Resources, uh, and you're over there in Frankfurt. I'm down here in Charlestown, Indiana. Um, it's good to have you on here. Now, there, you said you're the director. What does that look like uh, as you're in charge over there? Uh, yeah, so director can have uh, multiple meanings. Uh, sometimes I'm the guy that uh, y- you know communicates on behalf of 180 to the community, and sometimes I'm the guy that does the dishes. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, I think operations director is kind of a catch-all term uh, that encompasses uh, a lot of jobs that, that we do here. So. Well, your history, you're one that's not uh, having a lot of roles and responsibilities. It's not foreign to you. Uh, you uh, mentioned, We mentioned that you served in the Army and you did serve overseas. Real, real quick, going back to that. What is the difference in the culture of going overseas and then trying to come back? Because we've had episodes about that with veterans, and they talk sure. about the difficulties there. Um, what what was your role over there in Afghanistan? And, and then what was it like coming back home after serving over in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so my role in the Army was primarily as a uh, helicopter mechanic and an air crewman. 
uh, air crew serve uh, different roles and functions, um, such as uh, cargo master. Uh, so you're 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 certifying load distribution on that on like in weights on the helicopter, uh, as well as you know operating the guns and uh, just kind of you know flying with the aircraft and making sure that it stays in the air. You got your trusty duct tape there to keep it from leaking too much. Now, did you ever? You stayed at base. Were you in the in the chop? Did you ever jump out of an aircraft? What What did your your role look like as far as that? Uh, yeah, I have. I've jumped out of a few aircraft, uh, but not not in Afghanistan. Uh, no, I. Uh, my primary role in Afghanistan was to fly with the helicopter and make sure that it, you know, uh, make sure that that it stayed in the air, essentially. So that so. really that had to have put you in harm's way quite a few times. Uh, what what goes through your mind as you're just out there in the air, understanding you're in a war zone? Um, I guess you don't really think about it too much, other than it's just kind of your day to day job. Uh, you know, maybe initially when you get there, you you, you kind of have this initial introduction to uh, just kind of the the hazards of of being in uh, in a combat zone. But uh, over time, you just kind of adapt to that. Uh, I think your brain kind of adapts to that. And that, I think that's, you asked the question, like, what is it like to adapt coming back? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a combat zone, your, your senses attune to the hazards so that you can, you can be prepared and, and uh, counteract. Uh, coming back, your senses are still kind of like on high alert, right? We talk about fight or flight responses. And that's, when we talk about PTSD, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about where you're, your fight or flight response, uh, you know, has as attuned to a greater sense of danger. And so everyday life, uh, things that you would normally tune out in everyday life, uh, traffic, uh, a dog barking, a large crowd, you have trouble tuning that out now. And it's, it, it can be, it, it's overwhelming. It's almost like a sense of like over uh, stimulation, you know? Um, and yeah, so, yeah, that, and I think, I can think of like, well, I, you know, I have three kids, so I'm thinking of oh, at home, you know, it's easy to get overstimulated, but that's when the, the dog's barking, the three kids, two kids are fighting and the baby's crying. And then, you know, you're just walking in the door, but it kind of sounds like what you're talking is just what I would take as a normal walk through a neighborhood can mm-hmm. somehow be overwhelming, overstimulating. And does that shut you down or how do you deal with that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it can shut you down. And, and oftentimes, I mean, what soldiers do when they return is, is, uh, to cope, they isolate and they, they start, uh, engaging in, in negative coping, uh, mechanisms such as drinking or drugs, um, just, just to try to, to cope with the, the experience of returning home. Um, I, I recommend the, you know, and, and what worked for me is just I had a tremendous support system at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my wife, uh, Debbie, it was a huge support for me. And uh, and I had a community of believers um, that loved us and that, you know, um, uh, kind of really understood because they lived in the military community. They understood the complexities of, of uh, coming back from combat. But, yeah, I would point to a strong support system as your greatest coping skill in overcoming uh, PTSD. So. Well, before I ask you, because I, I, I do want to know how one jumps from being, you know, on aircraft in the military in the middle of Afghanistan to becoming 
you know, a director of recovery resources and becoming a social worker and all those things. That's, that's a big jump in career. That's mm-hmm. a second career, but kind of a sidebar. Cause I hear people when they talk about addiction or chemical dependence, and we'll talk about stigma a little bit later, but they talk about, well, you know, this is the responsibility of the individual, which I understand. And they say they made a choice at some point to do that first time. And so it's mm-hmm. their fault and it's sure. on them and they should have known better. But as I'm hearing you talk about our veterans and, and it's not only veterans that scru- struggle with uh, chemical dependence, let's just put that out there. But since we're talking about it, these are individuals that we hold in high esteem. We honor them for a reason. We respect them for their service. Mm-hmm. And when they come home, I mean, that overwhelming, the PTSD, the CPTSD, the different things that we're discovering now um, that should have been known as far back as World War One. you know, now with this generation are becoming evident. What, what would you say to people that are putting that blame on an individual that's in that situation too, and making maybe that first decision for chemical dependence as a coping mechanism mm-hmm. from within such a terrible, dark, lonely bottom pit place. Mm. Yeah. So that, uh, what you've identified is, is, uh, one reason that people, um, you know, become addicted or chemically dependent. Um, and that's, that's coping with a mental health disorder. Um, and, it's not just it's not just isolated to veterans. Um, a lot of people with mental health health disorders are what we'd call co-occurring disorders, uh, where substance use is in this uh, this exchange with the the, the mental health disorder. Uh, they both perpetuate each other, uh, and so so you've got substances or alcohol making uh, post traumatic stress disorder worse, and vice versa. Um, so they contribute to one another. Um, so to the person, to the person that you know, um, yeah, I, I think that that a response like that would really, I, I don't know that it would be based in some sort of like maniacal rejection of somebody, like oh, you just need to get your act together. But it might be based more um, in kind of a lack of understanding of the impact of mental health uh, and and how substance use and mental health go together. And that's a gracious response because uh, you know. On my side, I'm like, I want to be just like, hey, I get personal responsibility, but have some compassion here. But truly bringing in that people don't understand unless you're in that world. Uh, it mm-hmm. is true. That compassion, that learning in your understanding, uh, I'm sure you got from your education with social work and then moving into 180 recovery resources. What did that look like for you to, to transition from uh, a uniform and uh, that rigid schedule and you know, flying on, on aircraft and doing all that to sitting in a chair in a class and deciding that you're going to go put your subject yourself to, to that rigor, uh, and then moving into the role you are now, how did that come about? Yeah. So, uh, when, when I, I served for six years, um, uh, and there comes a point cause the, the retirement for military is like 20 years. Uh, mm-hmm. so you, you serve 20 years and then you can retire. So at the six, the six year mark, it kind of comes to a decision point. It's like, am I am I going to reenlist and stay in and finish my 20 years? Because if I if I reenlist for another six, I might as well stay for the whole thing. Um, you know, ultimately we were we were weighing our options, and uh, I, I guess it came down to this. My I watched my dad in ministry and service with youth 
uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, mm -hmm. 35 years, he's he's been working with kids with trauma, uh, delinquency issues, and uh, he's made a huge impact in, in thousands of lives. Uh, and he's he's my hero. Um, so from a young age, I knew that I wanted to do anything that I did. I wanted to do something service oriented. I wanted to have a, a meaning and purpose behind what I did. Uh, originally, with going to God's Bible School and College, uh, the intent was to get a medical degree uh, paired with a missions degree and uh, go overseas and start medical clinics. So like saving, extending lives and telling people about Jesus. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, spent a year as a nurse aide and discovered that the medical field, not for me. So uh, well, as, as a registered nurse, it's in, what, what, what was it about the field that uh, moved you away from uh, pursuing that? Yeah, that's that's easy. Probably the various <laughs> fluids and substances that regularly come out of people. Uh, they all they all wash off. It's fine. Your skin is a great barrier. So <laughs> anyways, I, I, I digress. Continue. Uh, yeah. So so uh, decided that, you know, the next best thing. Uh, was the army. Uh, so, so, you know, my wife, uh, after some, some decision making and some, some debate, uh, we decided that the army was a viable, uh, option for us. So, um, you know, Debbie has been an, an awesome, uh, partner in that, you know, throughout all of this, but yeah, so, so coming down to the decision to get out, um, I called Doug Dershide, who's the, the director of Pineview Homes up in Michigan, uh, where I'm from. And uh, I, I said, Doug, I'm, I'm looking at getting out of the Army, and I'm thinking about getting a counseling degree. Uh, do you guys need a counselor? Is, is there, you know, do, do you need help? And, uh, and he said, Greg, really what we need is a social worker. And uh, I didn't really know what a social worker was back then, but, you know, you kind of get the stigma of, of CPS workers and things in your mind, uh, middle-aged woman in a pantsuit. And uh, <laughs> I didn't see myself aligning with that very much. But as I did more research, I discovered that it's actually like the fastest route to becoming a clinical therapist. Um, and, uh, and so like doing some research again, uh, we just decided that that was the path that we were going to go down. Um, so yeah, I worked at, at Pineview, uh, up in Michigan as a, as a case manager and a therapist for a short time. And then this opportunity, uh, after I received my master's degree, uh, from Indiana Wesleyan, uh, this opportunity here at 180, the timing was, was, it had to be a God thing, man, uh, just the way that it worked out. But, uh, this opportunity came up down here and they were looking for somebody crazy enough to do both the role of operations director and therapist. Uh, so they could save some money to start off with. <laughs> I'm kidding on that part, but <laughs> well, but uh, you know, it just it was a really, really great opportunity. Uh, of course, you know, substance use was not my preferred field. I did not see myself getting into substance use. Um, I wanted to work with veterans with you know trauma and things like that. But um, this this was kind of the opportunity that I never saw coming that. Um, you know, I, I have loved learning about um, these people who struggle with addiction and um, learning really about the complexities and difficulties they face in their life, which, by the way, make the complexities and difficulties of my life seem trivial mm. um, and, and learning how to how to understand them and love them and show them hope. 
Yeah, and and just before we jump in, because I want to know about you know what what some of those people look like, and and what their lives look like, and maybe some some stories of hope and restoration that's come out of that. Um, but I know that uh, a couple sidebars. I know in my life, the people that that I meet uh, in my profession that are struggling with chemical dependence and addictions, they're just yeah. regular people, man. Mm-hmm. Like the people that come to the hospital that have overdosed, a lot of I, they'll be like. Hey, I actually got to get out of here at six thirty because I got to be to work at seven thirty, um, and I can't be late. You know, these are these are plumbers, lawyers, um, school teachers. Like these are normal people with a chemical dependence, and and you would never know. You would right. never know, um, right. and you really don't know what someone's going through uh, to the degree that they are going through it. Before we jump into learning about some of those people and what you've learned in your your walk with them. I do want to know, because you've mentioned Debbie, we talked about your kids. How did that transition from the military to social worker to now director of, of a recovery service, how did that affect your family? And maybe how did you, what you learned in your, uh, your, your social worker journey, uh, how did that affect how you interact with your family? Hmm. That's a really great question. Um, oftentimes the, the families of, of veterans um, and military personnel, they're they're kind of forgotten about, um, mm. but they experience a very real secondary trauma uh, when dad is is struggling to deal in everyday life. Um, it makes life difficult on the kids. It makes life difficult um, on the spouse, and uh, um, you know they have they've supported me tremendously. Um, but what what was interesting to me was that uh, Debbie and I have talked a lot in that that um you know i experienced coming out of the military um you kind of get this sense that like the the best and most significant contributions you've made are behind you and that um you know the rest of your life will never be as good as you know the experience of having served um and so like that that was a real struggle for actually both of us because debbie had an identity rooted in uh, a mil- being a military spouse and the responsibilities that come with that. And so it was a real change and a real struggle for both of us coming out of the military. We had to adapt to a new identity. Um, mm. And uh, I'll say this, having found purpose and service, um, you know, in my role as a, as a therapist and as a director, that definitely helped to, um, helped me to cope with that change of identity where I felt like what I'm doing has meaning. And I really, I would urge, I would urge that, um, you know, any veterans that are coming out that are, you know, what do I do next? You know, find, I would urge them to find ways to serve in other capacities because through that service, you, you find a new sense of identity. Well, and what I'm making up as I hear you there is it's a, a change and correct me if I'm wrong, but a change from your focus is inward to your focus is now outward. I mean, we all need purpose. That, that's very clear. But instead of like looking into because I heard you at the beginning, I am finished. I am retired. I have done everything I'm supposed to do. I have served mm-hmm. and now coming out service isn't over. The focus out from here towards the individuals out here. Right. How much of that did, did the focus change? Did that help with, with where you were at with your identity? Yeah. Um, 
I think it's because when we when we're outwardly focused and we see the problems that other people are dealing with, it has this shrinking effect on our own problems. Um, suddenly, our problems don't seem so big when when our eyes are up and we're we're scanning the environment and seeing, you know, our brothers and sisters that are struggling in other ways um, that we can help. So it's it's got this this way of taking the priority off of your problems and and putting it on somebody else's. Uh, it kind of it kind of diminishes the the impact of of the struggles that you have. I think I, at least that's been my my personal experience. So. Well, I like that what I've heard so far is the importance of that community aspect and then putting your focus on serving others. And speaking of community, uh, you're helping to build a community of those that have struggled with some sort of uh, addiction uh, Mm -hmm. as they go through their recovery. So with that, and I'm not sure exactly where to start because I have so many questions, um, but I kind of want to ask you this question. What is the culture within your recovery services look like? Is it like some rigid militaristic style thing, get in your bunk, make sure I can bounce a quarter off of it. We're going to cure you through rigidity type thing. Or what what does the culture look like there? Yeah. So um, we do have, we do have a a highly structured schedule. Um, We do have expectations that, that you maintain a clean living environment. Um, You know, there are uh, and, and we we operate a little, just in an explanation. We operate a nine to twelve month uh, recovery program. It's a residential program where you come, you live here, um, you you uh, attend therapy, you attend classes and meetings, uh, which help to educate and inform uh, people about addiction and about um, ways that they can that they can. Uh, uh, what what is the best recipe for recovery essentially um but yeah back to the schedule um yeah we 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 do operate a rigid schedule um because a a lack of discipline often comes with and contributes to uh uh, to addiction so uh, you find that part of learning how to get back into normal life is learning how to adhere to a schedule and maintain responsibility um, and so, yeah, that, that is a, that is a part of our program. Um, this is, and I want to, this is a men's program. Uh, you know, there, there are probably things that I would change about our program if it was, if it was focused towards women. Uh, but what, what we've noticed is that men seem to thrive on, uh, a structured discipline setting. So, so nine to 12 months, you're, that's, that's a long time. So you're really getting to know these people. Uh, and I'm assuming, you know, there's got to be some some level of, um, I don't know, emotional pull from you. Because not everybody's probably succeeding through these programs. Mm-hmm. There probably is some sort of attrition or attrition rate or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, But then also there's people that make it through. So there's that emotional boost Um, so first of all, how do you keep yourself emotionally healthy going through this? Um, and then second, what, what is that looking like? The, the, are there a lot of people thriving through this, uh, and a lot of people recovering? Mm -hmm. Um, you identified a a key component of recovery earlier, and that is community. Um, uh, one of our, one of our slogans here is we recover together. Um, it's actually a healthy communities, uh, one of the organizations here in town, that's their slogan. Uh, but we definitely perpetuate that in our organization as well, um, because 
recovery from substance use, alcohol use, and chemical dependency is, I, I struggle to say that it's impossible, but it is highly unlikely without the help of a community. And so that's what we're building here is, is a community of people that, that um, thrive together. Uh, they understand one another because they have similar uh, experiences in life. Mm. Um, uh, going back to the the original question, how do you how do you cope with the emotional ups and downs of of uh, you know it's no it's it's no uh, uh, mystery that addiction and the field of addiction comes with a lot of trauma, um, and so sometimes. Uh, the trauma of, of the clients can interplay with your own experiences in life, create what's called uh, transference and countertransference. Sort of like when we when we uh, project our emotions onto their experience and vice versa, and that can become really detrimental to the therapeutic process. Right. So it is absolutely crucial to maintain appropriate boundaries when working with uh, any individual. Uh, in, in any field, you have to maintain appropriate boundaries. You're protecting yourself, you're, protect, you're protecting them. Uh, but professionally speaking, um, you have to maintain good boundaries. Yeah, that makes sense across, I mean, me as a nurse, you as a social worker, even pastors, you know? Absolutely. Pastors do, they're the front line. People go to their church, to their pastor a lot of the times, the mm-hmm. majority of the time first when they're having any sort of issue um, so that's something to keep in mind if you're a pastor and you're listening that that boundary that setup and understanding the secondary trauma. That's why we talk about being trauma informed in your practice as a pastor. Right. You brought up something there for a second. I kind of want to get your take on it as a professional in addiction recovery resources and services. Is addiction because you'll hear people say this is something you're just going to struggle with forever. You are an addict. Mm-hmm. There's programs out there, twelve steps program. 12 step programs that say, this is who you are. Now you are an addict. Uh, mm-hmm. this is your identity and you can put that in. That becomes part of who you are. Yeah. But I guess I'd ask you kind of your take is addiction, a disease that you're just going to struggle with forever or is there and kind of setting you up here? Cause something I believe is there hope in Christ for delivering someone from substance abuse and, and maybe what's been your experience, uh, with one versus the other disease process, uh, or, you know, does he deliver everyone? Why not everyone? Mm. That, that is a, that is a really good question that kind of gets to the heart of, um, uh, Christians attempting to minister to people in addiction. Uh, so, so let's, let's first point out what addiction is. Okay. Addiction is a, it's a dysregulation of dopamine output in the brain. Okay. So, so, uh, as we go through our lives, there's kind of a natural dopamine feedback between our brain and our behavior and experiences uh, to point out as an example, like if a child does well in a sports activity, right. And you praise him or he receives praise for his performance. Uh, the brain is releasing dopamine, right. Which reinforces the behavior. And it's most likely going to result in like, he's going to want to do that activity again. Okay. Yeah. Our, our bodies do it too, to make us want to eat. Like I eat certain things, boom, I, it, rushes my brain with dopamine. So oh, yeah. I want to eat more. Right. It's crazy. You eat a Snickers, it's enjoyable. Your brain's released dopamine. It's going to reinforce the, the behavior and you're going to want another Snickers. It can cure your whole day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just not, just not your belt line. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, so, so let's on the obverse, if the child like that we're talking about, if he performs poorly, receives criticism or is rebuked, that dopamine is withheld. 
right? And so that child may not want to do that activity again. This this is like so so think about in school. Like if if a child is struggling in school and they get criticized or you know uh, they're not likely to enjoy school. It's going to make that that you know even more difficult to deal with. Um, but so so let, let's talk about how like a substance uh, interacts with your dopamine uh, dysregulation. Okay, um, meth like methamphetamines. Okay, and and sex is a popular thing to compare it to because there is a dopamine release with sex that reinforces the behavior, right? Uh, methamphetamines release up to ten times more dopamine than sex. Okay, so imagine the chemical reinforcement of that. All right, mm. uh, you have kind of the same. You have kind of the same uh, um, response from from heroin. Okay, but but with heroin, there's there's this there's this catch, right? Because if you've used it for so long, eventually uh, your body like it's called, uh, you know, dope sickness. When you, when you have not used, you start to go through withdrawal symptoms. And so rather than using drugs for fun, people are literally just using to keep themselves from getting sick and feeling these awful, uh, you know, side effects of not using. Well, even more so than that, understanding that it's not, it's not just feeling awful. You can die. You can die from coming off yes. of heroin yeah. well, if it's done wrong. And, and alcohol. I mean, uh, seizures. Sure. You can have seizures. And, yeah, you can you can die from withdrawal effects if you're not, like, medically supervised. Um, so so it is like this. It's like this terrible trap that people have gotten themselves into. Um, you know, and, and then there's there's different ways that people come into addiction, right? Uh, one of the most – one of the most uh, – uh, so well-recognized ways because we're going through this opioid e epidemic, right? Where doctors were just, uh, you know, prescribing uh, opioids to people for, for minor pain issues. Oh, and yeah. then they would find themselves chemically dependent on opioids. Right. And, and so for getting your wisdom teeth taken out, you know, it's just, yeah. yeah. And now you're addicted to opioids and you're trying to prevent that dope sickness and you're, you're seeking, you're seeking opioids, however you can get them. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's just one Avenue, but that is the, that is, uh, that's the one that's in the news the most. And that's where the lawsuits against these huge pharmaceutical companies and doctors have come from. Um, the, the good news along those lines is that all of those money, all the money coming in from those lawsuits is going back to communities like ours to help, um, uh, relieve and recover people from, from the op opioid epidemic. Right. So that is a that is an upside. Well, on on your point too of what it's like to try to come, so, you know, people are like just get off of the stuff, man, just stop. Yeah. Well, if you think about what you brought up, let's just say alcohol. To get into an alcohol recovery program, you first have to be sober. Mm -hmm. You don't go to one hundred and eighty recovery or whatever it is, you know, landmark, whatever these these recovery places are right out of the gate where you just took a drink in the parking lot before you walk in, mm -hmm. you go to the hospital for that. Right. And then you have a stay in the hospital for, for a week or two. And then if you, once you make it through that, if you don't, uh, you know, relapse or if there's not room for you, because a lot of hospitals these days are you're boarding in the emergency department, waiting on a room upstairs, uh, heaven forbid you're struggling with suicidal ideation along with that because your, your brain is just all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then if you go, if you leave, you know, you're set back, but 
working in your program, nine to 12 months Mm -hmm. uh, to fully recover. So we're talking about, can, can anybody just stop and take a year off of work real quick? Mm. Can you just, can you just, I can't do that. You know, you think about wife, kids and you know, we'll do it for your kids. Like I, I am, I'm working and, and balancing what I can. Right. Like just getting off of the stuff. It's not that simple. Yeah. Uh, and so, so there's a couple, there's a couple questions you asked, um, you know, like how should Christians view addiction, right? So we just kind right. of explained the, the physiological um, side of addiction, but that's only one aspect, right? There's a psychological aspect of, of addiction, and then there's a spiritual aspect of, of addiction. Uh, so what, what I've been kind of forced to adopt just, just through learning uh, as I've worked with with people in addiction is sort of this holistic disease understanding of addiction that it impacts physiological, psychological, and spiritual. Um, and there's consequences to all three of those uh, aspects. And so that's what 180 does. We try to treat from a holistic perspective where we are Christ-centered and we want to introduce people to Jesus, right? And his renewing of the mind that he talks about in scripture Yes. But but we also offer evidence based therapies and and uh, tools that research has shown uh, to reduce the impact of addiction uh, and to recover that quality and potential of life, uh, you know, for for a person that that's wanting to recover. I have a straying thought on that as you bring up the renewing of the mind. I've wondered as I, uh, looking at how addiction we understand now in the last couple decades how it kind of remaps your brain mm-hmm. it literally rewires your brain trauma traumatic experiences do the same thing right and it makes me wonder how much of that renewing of the mind in scripture is actually remapping of the mind as well because uh, you can kind of think of the damage done like oh i'm a lost case i have brain damage but sure. through christ is there actually renewing remapping and positive rewiring of the brain What's yeah. your what's your experience been with people as they meet Christ in your recovery program? Is there a difference between those who meet Christ and who don't, or, or what mm. does it look like? Um, you know, you touched on you touched on uh, something really important that I want to hit. Okay, and that is like the the healing process. What does that look like? Um, well, first of all, like I, the the impacts, the negative outcomes of addiction and chemical dependency, they vary. Uh, really greatly from person to person, depending on a variety of factors, such as like trauma history, genetics, age. But what we do know is the likelihood of long-term health and psychological problems, it increases right directly with age and length and amount of use. Um, But people's resiliency is different. Um, So yeah, I've seen, um, you know, where there's, where there's a guy that's used for uh, 20 years um, and has no significant cognitive param- cognitive impairment, um, you know, even though there may be significant physical or medical issues that accompany his use. Um, and then there's, you know, I've seen I've seen use where it's only been a couple of years and it's it's created severe cognitive impairment. Um, and a lot of it, again, it comes down to the amounts they're using, the frequency, uh, the age, it, even trauma history of the person. Um, but these these factors, these different factors um, interplay in such a way it kind of makes it difficult to predict what exactly um, the the impact is going to be. Um, okay, so going back to uh, how how should uh, you know what is what is the role of Christ uh, in the healing process, right? Um, 
what I think is absolutely amazing, when the scripture talks about renewing of the mind, you can see an actual physical healing process, right? Now, I, I mean, when we start off in our life, we start off with a certain amount of, of potential, right? I mean, mm-hmm. genetically speaking, we, you know, I'm never going to be 6'6", right? I, so, so we start off with kind of this, this preset, uh, you know, nature versus nurture, uh, and how that responds, or, or how how we we come to life and our experiences, it impacts that potential. Okay, so does substance use and alcohol use does it decrease that potential over a lifetime? It, it does. Um, it does have significant impacts on that potential. Um, but what is still amazing is that through a relationship with Christ and uh, and and healthy uh, spiritual uh, having having a healthy spiritual life, uh, you can you can actually see a phys- physiological response to that, right? Uh, a relationship with Christ, you know, we're we're told to uh, not be anxious, right? Well, I don't think that he's saying, you know, don't be anxious, and if you're anxious, that's a sin. He's advocating that you bring your anxiety and your depression to him, and it, he will help you through it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have seen firsthand that people who have developed a relationship with Christ, uh, one, they've engaged in the, in the, uh, uh, community of Christ followers, which helps support them. It's a protective factor against their addiction. Um, but you can, you can see like somebody who has been in use for a long period of time and then. And then they come out of that. You can see like this physical change come over them and they don't even look like the same person anymore. It's amazing. That's awesome. Well, you never, (laughs) as you were talking, you never know what's going to be controversial. Uh, And I can just imagine now there's going to be a few people writing in to tell me the three reasons why anxiety is actually a sin, (laughs) 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 which which I will enjoy. Please. Uh, It's Nate at GraceStoryMinistries.com. Send that in uh, and I'll be happy to look at it. Uh, you bring up another point that I, uh, I I think this could be controversial as well, but I know there's people going through your program who are addicts who become Christ followers. Hmm. So let me pose this question to you, understanding, you know, your theology, your theological background is in intercultural studies, but can a Christ follower, uh, can you be a Christ follower and struggle with chemical dependence? Yeah. Um, and I expect a lot of emails after this too. Okay, whatever you say. So, so to that question, I would probably pose a counter question, right? So, there's a lot of other mental health disorders that can impede a person's ability to function, isolates them from healthy relationships, uh, probably impairs them from participating as a as a uh, a church member, uh, you know, or taking certain responsibilities on within a church community, right? So a counter question that I would pose is, can a person be a Christ follower and struggle with schizophrenia or bipolar, right? Because these are these are both mental health disorders that, that impede and impair function. Substance use disorder is a, it's a psychological disorder that impairs function. You're already ahead of my counter question, which would be from, you know, devil's advocate, back to that thing we talked about, out of ignorance. Well, these people... They made the choice. Mm. You don't make the choice for schizophrenia. Sure. Uh, they made the choice to take that first hit 
sip, whatever it may have been. So to them, I would say that most people that I've encountered that I'm working with at this level of addiction, uh, that first hit or sip was taken at eight and nine years old. And it was introduced wow. to, the, to them by mom and dad or uncle wow. or older sibling. And that behavior was perpetuated as this is normal. This is what we, we use together. This is a family activity. Um, some parents, uh, you know, I encountered, I encountered, uh, one resident who told me that mom was sending meth with him to school to distribute in middle school, to distribute to his classmates. Um, so, I mean, that's when we're talking about addiction, we're not just talking about a person who's made a choice. We're talking about an entire culture that's perpetuated. You're that first of all, it just blows me away. And because at that age, you know, eight, nine, 10, um, these figures, if the parents are doing it, these figures are the first representation of the authority, love, acceptance, uh, who God is going to be to these individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's perverted, twisted, and actually becomes a anchor or a millstone to borrow the biblical metaphor around their neck for the rest of their life where that, that just is mind blowing, mind blowing. Yeah. So what a counterpoint to, they took the first, yeah, they took the first sip, but they didn't know any better and they really didn't. Yeah. And, um, I mean, some people are born with a, with a chemical dependency on alcohol. They're born with a chemical dependency on uh, you know, whatever drug of choice that was in mom's system when they were born. Um, you know, one of the coming into the the field of addiction, um, you know, we have all these presumptions and we have all these ideas, uh, you know, nice, clean, moral lines uh, between things. This is right. This is wrong. One of the first things that that I found was that uh, everything I knew about addiction was wrong, especially coming from a from a, a Christ follower perspective. Uh, where I viewed addiction as solely a moral problem. And if they would just have a relationship with Jesus, you you could fix it. If that were true, all we would need is churches. We wouldn't need hospitals. We wouldn't need addiction treatment centers. We wouldn't need evidence-based practice because all we need is the altar. Um, the truth is that addiction and chemical dependency is much more complex than that, uh, that it is a whole person problem, body, mind, and soul. And that Truly, one of the most effective ways that that we've found uh, in best practice is a- addressing it from that perspective. It is a body, mind, and soul problem, and we have to address it like that. Coming at it from a solely moral perspective, all it's going to do is push away and reject the person who's reached out for help in the per- in the first place. Well, yeah, I can imagine because it it kind of begs the question as you're going through this. The, you're struggling, you want to do better, you're trying to, I, and, you know, I, I'm assuming the best of people. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's someone out there that's just given up and, you know, they are the stereotypical person that so, is a convenient throwaway for people. They're like, oh, these people are just doing what they want to do and love love themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think if I put myself in that situation, it's the exact opposite. I feel like my self-worth, my self-love, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, would not be there. I would be struggling with the self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I guess it begs the question for you as you work with these individuals, 
what does their, when they come in, what is their self-worth, their self-identity, um, their self-care, w- what does it look like for them coming in? Uh, very low. Um, in most cases, addiction has taken everything. Um, a lot of, a lot of these, these people were living normal lives. They were, they were, some of them were very successful, you know, multiple cars, a nice house, a family. Um, you know, in one case, uh, actually no, several cases, uh, the loss of a loved one or a child was the precipitative event that started people into addiction to the point that they lost everything. So they're coming in with very low self-worth. Um, and, and these are people that, that society has rejected um, in a very real way. And, and sometimes the church has rejected. Uh, and, that's, and that to me is a shame because if you're, if you're rejecting this population, you are, you are alienating a source of people that, that uh, is ready to be one. Is you know mm-hmm. this this field has been an awesome opportunity to tell people about Jesus and the hope that He brings. Um, I, I look at like how Jesus interacted with with the lepers, right? He went to the people that society had cast out, discarded, counted out of the game, and He rescued them, right? And if we're not doing that, are we really following Jesus and what He asks us to do? Well, even when the, I. Uh... <laughs> Thinking about that as that's actually me over there too, but for the grace of God, right? That's me. If I mean, I can't imagine the pain of losing one of my girls, right? I, I can't imagine it. losing my wife. Losing the loss can be so powerful. Uh, it can be the instigator of taking even more. Like that could be me, except for right. So finding and, and as you talked about this too, you, you mentioned the, their identity. And I love that you're doing the whole person healing because I can imagine how healing it can be to come in without understanding what your true identity is and then hearing that your identity is in Christ Mm -hmm. and that you are a child of God and you are an heir and you are all these things that he lists out. Um, Even just you are loved. Right. Oh, you are accepted. The love and power. That's not something that, that these people are accustomed to. Uh, that's not like the, the truth, like when they come in and you treat them with dignity and respect and, and treating them like a person, that's not something that they're used to. And sometimes they, they struggle with a response to it uh, because it's overwhelming. Oh, huh. well, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> well, this is not a great uh, parallel, but like I'm someone who kind of struggles and I've been working for it uh, on it in the last few years of, saying thank you to accepting like, Hey, you did a great job. And I'm like, ah, yeah, it was dirt, you know, like not just degrading yourself or self-deprecation, but just simply saying, thank you. Right. That takes a lot of work. And I can only imagine if your whole life you felt like you were reaching up to touch rock bottom and somebody says, I think you're an awesome person. I've, I've watched you this last week. You've done amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, I'm going to go to my room for a while. Yeah. Um, so, that that's you've touched on something really important in in uh, in work like this, unconditional positive regard is really important. So in other words, when somebody comes in, you know, and they've interacted with you, how do they leave that interaction? Do they do they leave that interaction feeling encouraged, uh, you know, like you love and respect them, or you know, have they left that interaction feeling ignored, or uh, or looked down on? 
so understanding your impact, uh, the impact that you have in your interactions with people is really important. can walk into and feel unconditional positive regard to that i'd say ouch <laughs> based on some of the churches i've walked into um but where else would you want an addict to be i mean the church should be a blend of so many people but like they should be in there like wow i i don't know how i fit in but i don't want to leave so our, i want to be here to, to give an indicator uh our this the church that we attend here in Frankfurt, Dr. David Fry's church, uh, in the sponsor church of 180. Um, they have they have done an amazing job of casting aside what they thought they knew about addiction, and in adopting a new understanding, and that has allowed them to reach people like in an unbelievable way. Um, we have a we have a we have a smoke a smoking section outside the church, right? Um, it's, it's not, it's not for the pastor, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's for people that, you know, they're not going to come to church unless they can smoke a cigarette outside. Right. But we still want them to come to church. <laughs> we want We want them to feel loved and accepted. Uh, and you know what, bring your problems with you. And, sure. and we'll let Jesus sort it out. We'll, we'll let your relationship with God develop over time and we will love you through it. And that's, that's, uh, has it been, uh, a difficult, uh, adaptation for some people? Probably so. Uh, because that's, that's, that's not, I, I wouldn't say that that's common among churches that I've attended that sort of, that sort of outlook. No. And it's even something like I, I can remember as a kid, we'd, uh, or a teenager, you'd, you'd go to a major church at some point, you were traveling or something, you'd go to these mega churches. And that's one thing that was pointed out by, I forget who, friend, family member, uh, somebody like, oh, look, they smoke here. It, Jesus isn't here, obviously. Oh. They have smoking. Uh, like, oh, well, I mean, he's not a Cracker Barrel either, but we go there. I, <laughs> I, they have smoking. Like, But people come and they're fed at Cracker Barrel. Imagine, they might come and be fed at church too. Right. Uh, regardless of their addiction. Because again, smoking, if you've ever tried to come off, I haven't had that experience and I never never want to, but coming off of a nicotine addiction, that's, uh, people will literally pick death over that sometimes. Mm. And to this end, I do want to ask you this question because there is a lot of stigma. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of negative uh, about even uh, the the, uh, addiction to nicotine now my addiction to red bull is okay that's that's acceptable um (laughs) there's different different ones but maybe answer this question how can the church christ followers help those struggling with addiction and maybe reduce the stigma surrounding addiction within the body of christ um so stigma i i spend a lot of my i spend a lot of my time uh combating stigma um and not just in the church but uh, I, I have a story for this. Uh, one of, one of oh. our residents went to the doctor, a, a doctor, and he was he was getting set up with primary care, right? And and he told her that he was on medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder. And she said, substance use disorder. 
he's she's like what what are you addicted to and he said heroin and she backed up and like <laughs> like had this like fear response like if he breathed on her she was going to catch heroin addiction like <laughs> this is a doctor right and and this this was a response that i mean honestly it was really hurtful to him it 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 impacted him sure. uh, that's rejection right out of the gate from someone you're supposed to have to have your best interest exactly in. and he's it's not like he's drug seeking he's in a he's in a program where he's trying to get help and and this was the doctor's response so stigma is not just isolated to the church stigma is everywhere um, but but just a couple of just a couple of key things about addressing stigma. How can a Christ follower uh, help those struggling with addiction? Educate yourself on the causes and effects of addiction, substance use, and chemical dependency, um, and then radical love and acceptance of those struggling with substance use and addiction. Okay, and the best way to reduce stigma is just to obtain information and then perpetuate information. Uh, coming into this, I had my preconceived ideas about what addiction was, and and uh, they were all wrong. They were all wrong. And mm-hmm. so education helped to bridge that gap and and create create an effective pathway for those seeking recovery to also come to Christ. And that's that's what I think we as Christians can do. Um, we're there, this is a field that is ready, that is primed. They want to hear about Jesus. They're hungry for Jesus, but they're not going to come to somebody who has a distinctly moral view of addiction and they are rejecting them because, oh, you made a bad choice. Well, we'll make sure that, uh, and I love those those uh, points. We're going to put some links in the show notes if you want to educate yourself, not only the 180 Recovery Services link, so you can check out them, but some other links if you want to learn more about uh, chemical dependence, addiction, um, we'll make sure those are, are vetted for you. Um, before I ask you one more question, I do want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about you and uh, 180 Recovery Resources. Uh, yeah, um, on our website, 180recovery.org, and it's spelled weird. It's O-N-E-8-0, recovery.org. Uh, you can go there and learn about the programs and services that we offer. Uh, like, I, like I mentioned before, we're a Christ-centered, evidence-based uh uh, recovery. We offer a recovery program, but we want to be more than that. We're growing. Um, we we want to be a one stop for mental health and recovery services. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as we grow, yeah, come alongside us, follow us, and watch what we're doing. There's some crazy awesome stuff going on over here in Frankfurt. Uh, and if you'd like to contribute, there's a there's a donate feature on our website. Uh, we're definitely always looking for partners, um, you know, who are willing to uh, to help us build and grow. All right. So if you want to know more or if you share the passion uh, of, of Greg, uh, click that link in the show notes while you're listening to the rest of this episode. Go over there, uh, find that donate button or find um, Greg's uh, contact information and uh, get alongside him in the mission. Um, so before we, we go here, I do like to give guests an opportunity to kind of speak directly to the listener because we might have someone who I, I know that there's people in our gray story community that struggle with, uh, uh, some sort of chemical dependence, mm-hmm. alcohol, drugs, opioids, whatever it might be. And, you know, you can feel like even in a community like this, where there's healing, you're like, yes, there is healing for everyone, but mm-hmm. me. Um, 
And so as someone who's, who's helping so many on their journey of restoration in a holistic way, uh, if you could talk to the Grace Story community, to the listener right now, and, and, and say something that's been on your heart or something we've talked about or, or a word of encouragement, whatever it may be, what would that be from Greg? Uh, I would just simply say that there is no situation, there is no life that is too hopeless. Um, that uh, I, I have seen some some extremely, what situations that I've looked at and said that there's no way that this is possible. Uh, and here we are six, nine months where a person has been away from drugs, they've built new relationships, they've been reunited with their families, uh, and they're building a bridge to a new life for themselves. Uh, I, I, I hate calling ourselves a rehab because rehabilitation is like a restoration to a former, to a former state. That's not what we're interested in. We are, we are interested in building something new out of you. And that is possible, whether, you know, regardless of how hopeless you think your situation is, whatever you've lost, whoever you've lost, um, you, you don't have to stay there. You can, you can take your life back. Um, and, and I would say that there's hope in Christ. I love that. And if that's something that resonates with you again, go to the show notes, click on that link and, and get connected with, uh, Greg over there at 180. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your expertise and your time and your passion. Thanks, Nate, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And for you out there listening, uh, thank you so much for joining in. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts on that app, give us a follow, tap a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow there and hit the notification bell to never miss an episode. Like I say every time, there's no us without you. So get engaged, continue on your journey of restoration. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And until then, we'll be praying for you.